Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Uh, more importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Renny Thomas, who is Assistant Professor uh, at the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences at the Indian Institute of Science, Education, and Research in Madhya Pradesh. He's also a visiting fellow um, uh, in the Department of Cultural Anthropology and Cultural History at Friedrich Schiller University, Jena, Germany. Rainy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Raj. It's absolutely great to be here. So we're talking about a book that uh, that Rainy's just published uh, as part of the Rutledge Science and Religion series. So no doubt this podcast will be published to a number of relevant channels. The book, of course, is called Science and Religion in India, Beyond Disenchantment. Uh, an intriguing, perhaps even provocative title. Tell us about the backstory. How did you? How, how did you? How did you end up pursuing this line of research? Yeah, great question. You see, as you, as you mentioned, you know, I'm essentially trained as an anthropologist. So, there's the interest in science and religion came, you know, while visiting in some laboratory and scientific institutions in India. And when I was about to really propose my PhD work, I thought this is this is going to be a fascinating work, and that's how actually. Uh, my interest began and entered actually studying uh, some of the laboratories. So I did my fieldwork in Bangalore, actually, at uh, you know some of the uh, leading scientific institutions. I was interested in understanding, actually, as an anthropologist and as an ethnographer, how scientists actually deal with their everyday religious lives uh, beyond you know uh, their domestic spheres. You know, I was more interested in actually the existence of religion rituals. Uh, in the laboratories and uh, scientific institutions for a particular reason. Because when we study religion, you know, we don't really look at scientific laboratories to study religion. So I wanted to understand, you know, whether it is actually, whether it is possible to really look at non-sites of religion uh, to understand religion. So non-science such as, not sites such as uh, scientific laboratories, you know, hospitals, etc. In my case, it's the scientific laboratory. Yeah, that's how it began. Would you say, uh, to, to perhaps crudely generalize, which is uh, perfectly acceptable on podcasts, maybe not so much in, in journal articles, but um, uh, <laughs> would you say that the relationship between what we think of as, as what we, how we consider science and religion, would you say it's, it's, um, it's quite different in the Indian context? Yeah, it's quite different, actually, in the Indian context. There is no doubt about it. Of course, also precisely because of the fact that the diversity of religions uh, you know, the belief system that we have in India, right? So it's clearly different from the way 
the Abrahamic religions deal with science. So that's that really makes India a very uh, complicated case to look at actually science and religion. That's why I call it actually if you want to understand science and religion in India, we need to go beyond both the categories of uh, conflict and complementarity. Actually, both these categories are very you know it's, these are very limiting categories actually to understand the everyday life of science and religion in the Indian Indian context. So, on the one hand, I would like to go with, uh, you know, the fact that uh, science and religion, they have very different lives in India, both for historical and sociological reasons. But also, I don't want to make it very, you know, as an essentialist idea that it is very completely unique in India. So, that can also be dangerous. But I think uh, there is no doubt that actually the situation is quite different for historical and sociological reasons uh, in India, yes. You know, time and time again, both uh, in my particular niche as a scholar of Sanskrit narrative, but more importantly, in this context, as a as a, as a host uh, who has the extraordinary privilege of, of 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 really having a glimpse into scores and scores and now hundreds of, of studies, uh, time and time again, we see that really uh, it's both and it's it's either or is always it, it's it's hazardous in many situations but it seems like as soon as you enter south asia the either or thing just really <laughs> falls apart quite easily and the both and mode is a uh, is something there's something in the air or the soil but um uh, so without putting words in your mouth it doesn't seem that science and religion are as mutually exclusive or as problematic or as much of a tension within uh the scientific community in in india would you say? Yeah, absolutely, exactly. I mean, that's not in the, uh, you know, following by Facebook, for sure. Uh, but there are different narratives that I discuss in the book, actually. So you have, of course, a group of scientists would argue that there isn't a conflict, actually, between science and religion, and they give reasons for that. But then you also have, you know, scientists who disagree with that. But what is interesting is how they disagree is very different from their counterparts in the you know, or North American universities or Western universities, for sure. It's not uh, a binary rejection of, say, you know, we are scientists, therefore, uh, you know, uh, we cannot be religious, but there are other reasons for that, actually. And that, that's where the, I think they try to bring in the question of culture. For example, I have a whole chapter on atheist scientists, actually. So even the atheist scientists actually practice atheism very differently in the Indian context. So they, they don't really want to, for example, take Richard Dawkins as the model, but there are other models for the matter. They would sometimes go back to the uh, ancient Indian texts to refer to the school of rationalism and things like that. So it's interesting how they really, you know, construct their identities very differently uh, beyond these binaries. And that's why I think an ethnography of, you know, science and religion becomes very significant because as you all just mentioned, you know, so if you look at the historical texts for that matter, uh, it's always about okay whether uh, whether they are in conflict or you know there's a good relation and some relation. But when we really look at the field, that's not how it is actually. So I think that's where I think anthropological studies uh, become significant to make sense of the everyday life of uh, these concepts. What is it that you overall argue? Otherwise, put what is the perhaps most hopeful takeaway or takeaways from from the book as a whole? Uh, okay, great. So in the book is actually, as I said, no, it's, the book is basically about the way in which one can make sense of uh, anthropologically the relationship between science and religion. It it has, of course, you know, uh, various meanings. Uh, but essentially, it is arguing that we need to really 
you know, looked at the category, the life of science and the life of religion uh, in a more, uh, uh, you know, detailed manner. One has to engage with these categories and uh, how they really work together in scientific institutions. And it is also methodological, as I have started by saying, that it is significant to look at actually the non-sites of, uh, you know, religion to really study religious life. So therefore, laboratory becomes an important category. So I'm trying to really bring in uh, theoretical and methodological questions from uh, STS, Science and Technology Studies, and Sociology of Religion, for that matter. So uh, on the one hand, I think the book is arguing that it's important to look at the specificity of, you know, the science and religion life in India. But on the other hand, I'm also trying to argue how there can be a danger of really essentializing science and religion in India. As we know that this, this can actually lead to you know, various questions around cultural nationalism and things like that. So, and also, like, I have a separate chapter, um, or a separate chapter on caste in, 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 in Indian scientific institutions. So when we think about actually science and religion in India, I think it is extremely important that we also talk about questions around caste in scientific institutions, uh, which I try to do uh, in, in the book. Yeah. So as you mentioned a bit earlier, how does one go beyond the binaries of conflict and complementarity? Yeah, that's a very tricky question, actually. So where I try to basically use some, you know, theoretical ideas from in, in my work, I was trying to actually use so Bruno Latour's work on modes of existence, where he tries to argue that, you know, uh, you know, there are different modes of existence. So religion is completely different from actually science. One need not really compare and contrast actually both how they are life. So I was trying to really use that to understand the case of India to see that, you know, so this is also, this came from my conversation with scientists. In fact, they would argue that, you know, we don't really want to compare and contrast actually science and religion. This is a completely different. So therefore, one need not to really argue that actually that they are always together. Science and religion work in work or they are, they are, they coexist. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, we also don't need to say that they are always in, in you know, fight, they're fighting all the time, right? So if we consider these as different categories, it's completely fine, actually, because that is how uh, the scientists kind of told me during an interview is that, you know, for us, uh, religion is different from science. But then the question comes in, what happens when you see the presence of religion in scientific institutions, right? So in the laboratories, for example, how do we make sense of, for example, larger questions or secular spaces in the Indian context, for surely, uh, you know, these are public funded institutions and these are secular institutions. How do we make sense of the presence of religion uh, in the secular institutions? So, uh, yeah, I, therefore, I think it is very important that we need to uh, go beyond the binary, you know, both conflict and complementarity, but also try to see, uh, you know, what is really, uh, what is really seen as religion, what is really seen as, for example, culture, etc., uh, in the in the Indian setting, actually, could you perhaps uh, provide uh, an example or a couple of examples for listeners who may not be as familiar with? What are some examples of religiosity in scientific institutional settings? Yeah, so I'm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you know, so if you if if you if you look at any scientific institutions in India, uh, you'll find the presence of religious rituals and religious rituals uh, from you know one particular religion. 
And for various historical and uh, sociological reasons, actually, they are they are statistically and uh, culturally numerous. Actually, they are major they are the majority in uh, population in the scientific institutions. For, and for that reasons, you have celebrations. So, you know, all the rituals, all the celebration, all the festivals like such as Diwali, you know, Holi, Adinesh Chaturthi, Ayurveda Puja, etc., which I discuss actually in detail in the book. For example, the kind of acceptance. Uh, you know, these rituals actually you have in scientific institutions, right? So clearly these uh, rituals are performed, these, you know, festivals are celebrated in institutions. And uh, uh, I was, uh, you know, intrigued and I was, I was very uh, interested in knowing how people who are not from actually these religions or this belief system would respond to, uh, you know, uh, these practices. Right. So, if you look at my chapter, actually, caste, I I speak to many, you know, Dalit students and uh, researchers, and they have very different uh, things to say. You know, they would argue that actually we have our own uh, cultural systems and belief system, but we are we don't really celebrate those in the institutions. And I think now it is changing because many institutions, including IITs, have you know Ambedkar, Peria, Pune study group, they try to you know, intervene in these matters of culture. So I, I was actually interested in understanding what is really considered as culture. So in a way, my work is an ethnography of culture and cultural, because we often use these categories of, you know, uh, this is culture and this is cultural. And how does it actually work in Indian scientific institutions is what I was trying to make sense of. So these rituals can be basically an example of, uh, you know, Forms of religiosity of those institutions, right? Would we, uh, how do I frame this without it being a leading question? Um, uh, can we disambiguate culture from religious? Yeah, I think that's a key question that I was trying to really address in the book is that, you know, uh, can we make a distinction between cultural and religious? And this is exactly what, you know, many of my, uh, you know, scientists. Uh, also, they they made a distinction between cultural and religious. Now, for example, you know when you think about certain festivals and rituals, uh, I'll I'll give you an example that I discuss in the book, like you know Ganesh Chaturthi, uh, Diwali, and Holi. These uh, festivals were actually uh, by 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 the scientists, but then they make a distinction between actually. Uh, these forms as cultural, and then you also have other systems, such for example, Eid was perceived as religious. So there's a very interesting kind of distinction that they make between cultural and religious in the institution. So therefore, it's okay to really have cultural festivals in science institutions. You know, so what happens is actually the translation of religious into cultural actually gets certain kind of acceptance, social acceptance actually in the institution point of time, it loses its actually uh, religious identity. So it becomes cultural in that sense. Uh, during your interviews or writing process, what surprised you? Uh, really nothing really surprised actually because I've been reading texts uh, on this matter. But I think what is surprising was of course, not again not surprising, but uh, kind of shocking was actually the, the larger discussion on costs actually, right? So... Uh, you you see in the chapter, it's one of the detailed chapters in the book where I discuss how, for example, the way in which the idea of merit, the idea of passion was, uh, you know, ahistorically perceived, 
uh, you know, like as if there is something about marriage, as if there is something about passion, without really looking at the histories of the background that need to come from, uh, which is in many ways actually in continuation with what Ajanta Subramanian has done in her book on actually IIT Madras. Why the subtitle Beyond Disenchantment? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, various reasons actually. Uh, of course, uh, first of all, uh, for a you know publisher's point of view. Uh, second is actually I thought this is disenchantment is a very interesting category that we discuss all the time in sociology, and I really wanted to understand the everyday life of disenchantment. Uh, looking at actually the case of India, so very clearly there isn't any disenchantment actually. Uh, so it's kind of a you know the you know the American historian of religion, Jason Josephson Stall. In his very interesting book called The Myth of Disenchantment, looks at actually the genealogy of disenchantment, how it is actually not something that happens, etc. Right? So I wanted to understand in the Indian context how the idea or, or the concept of disenchantment actually works. It doesn't really work. I mean, uh, you know, so if, if one has to go with disenchantment, actually, science actually is going to be, uh, or, or science is going to decide the world. And, you know, so, but that's not how it really works among scientists, right? So they're religious, they, uh, they still live with their, the background of caste. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals, Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and also these backgrounds actually shape the way uh, they do their science sometimes. Sometimes it also shapes the way, the kind of places they want to be. And it's also interesting actually uh, if you look at uh, the way in which they would like to be part of these cultural groups. Uh, for example, even the atheist scientists that, they, that I, I, I spoke to and I documented in the book, that they're atheists and they don't really believe in any God, would still would like to really be part of the cultural, uh, you know, uh, system that they belong to. And how does it work? It works, of course, through marriage, marrying from one's own caste, actually, in that sense. So I think like what I was trying to do by putting this category of disenchantment is to really understand, first, the social life of the concept of disenchantment in Indian context, and on the other hand, also to problematize, actually, uh, the idea of disenchantment as a, you know, a historical category in that sense in Indian context. You mentioned your, your chapters, I believe, the final chapters on, um, on caste and, um, and atheism. Walk us through the structure of the book. How's the book structured? Yeah. Uh, the uh, the first chapter is actually uh, based on my archival work. It's a historical chapter where I'm trying to really look at how the category of science and religion worked during in the post-independent India, I'm looking at actually the various conversation 
Jawaharlal Nehru, the first Prime Minister of India, uh, had on you know various systems of knowledge, especially Ayurveda, and what was his take on Ayurveda and how he was trying to really look at actually Ayurveda through the language of science and scientific method. And I was because he was creating actually the distinction of science and metaphysics. And actually, it's very interesting that he he argues that you know of of course as you know very clearly that he didn't really support. Uh, you know, many of this knowledge system because he thought that these are unscientific and metaphysical systems, actually. So, for example, uh, you know, he, when during his uh, response to various uh, fellow members of Constitutional Assembly, like I was looking at the Constitutional Assembly debates, uh, he completely, uh, you know, disagreed uh, with the fact that we should really support actually institutionalizing you know, for example, systems such as Ayurveda, because he thought that this was uh, Ayurveda was actually lacking scientificity and, and it doesn't really follow scientific method. In fact, in one response to uh, one of the fellow members, he said that the state is willing to support uh, any systems of knowledge if they follow scientific method. And unless they follow scientific method, the state is not in a position to really support. So, uh, support, you know, systems such as Ayurveda. So I was trying to really look at in that chapter how the idea of science and religion walks through these debates, so which is historical. And then the next two chapters are actually based on my field or trying to look at actually the different forms of religious life, rituals, uh, you know, festivals, etc. that happens within the scientific institutions. Then the audience, uh, you know, the theaters and their everyday life, how they deal with the question of science, religion, culture, etc. Then the last chapter is to really look at how uh, and the life of social life of social political life of caste uh, in the institution that I have studied, but also incorporating examples from actually other scientific institutions. And then I'm trying to argue towards the end that actually the study of science and religion in India uh, should now uh, you know, uh, go beyond actually science and Hinduism uh, because we don't really have, for example, interesting, there are of course uh, interesting works, but I think we need to have more works on, when we use the word science and religion in India, we also need to have, you know, uh, Sikhism, Jainism, Islam, Christianity, uh, and, and, and various Adivasi belief systems and the way in which, for example, they would really deal with questions of the media. Uh, which is how I end the book, it's actually. Fascinating. Who would you say the book is for? Uh, the focus, audience, you meant? Yeah, who's it for? I mean, I mean, I mean that in a general sense, interpret it as you will, but who who might most benefit from reading the book? What subfields or what, what interests might it implicate? Yeah, the, uh, you know, uh, academic audience, but what is surprising is actually... Uh, the book was reviewed in very, you know, uh, uh, many actually uh, larger sites such as The Wire, etc. So, uh, so in, even though the book was actually meant for academic audience, anthropologists, historians of science, religious studies scholars, but uh, it really got attention from larger audience. So I think like, yeah, I mean, it, yes, I think both academic and non-academic. And, uh, and I must say that the Indian edition of the book was released just a couple of months ago, which is very helpful because uh, the earlier version was quite costly and it's a London edition. So now it's available in all the bookshops in India, which I'm quite happy about because 
Now, my former students would also get the book and say that I'm reading a book, which is the happy Yeah, that's that's lovely. I, I can certainly relate. I mean, Rutledge is a fine press without question, but it's obviously A, um, um, academic, and, and B, extensive, right? And um, so, so my two monographs are from published with Rutledge, and um, uh, d- 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 I-, I teased once in a while that you know I'm not sure I can afford to buy my own books, but I, <laughs> but uh, but th- but I have a third book out. It's a public book. It's called The Stories Behind the Poses, and and in very similar boat. I was delighted actually that Bloomsbury India picked it up. Uh, I think a couple of weeks ago. Uh, come to think of it, there was. And if you can believe it, we happen to be recording today on International Yoga Day uh, uh, slash the 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 uh, summer solstice, uh, the longest day of the year in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and uh, <laughs> if you can believe it, Times of India interviewed me about the stories behind the poses, and it was released just today. And I'm thinking, since when? <laughs> since when do you have academics <laughs> being covered? But but having said that. That bridging is precisely uh, one of the key elements of my own mission in the podcast, and that's why we—that's why it seems that it's a great fit. Because what, what are we doing on the podcast? We're bridging the, the public uh, sort of academic divide. Initially, I mean, the podcast is pitched to the interested generalist, or, or or really a lifelong learner, or just a member of the public. And I was surprised over the years to learn that so many of our specialist colleagues listen. I think to myself. Why on earth are they listening to this podcast? I ask questions like, "So who is Gandhi?" So you know, what's, what? <laughs> so, and I thought to myself, "Well, well what other podcasts would they listen to? They listen to they listen to this podcast." Um, but no, it's it's wonderful to see the it's, the bridging is wonderful. Is my my point? The bridging is great. Happy to see that for your book. Yeah, no, I'm very happy about your you know forthcoming book actually, Bloomsbury India. So basically, uh, you know, currently I'm actually. Uh, co-editing a book for them, actually. So, which is called Decolonial with Keywords, South Asian Attitudes and Experiences. I'm doing it with, actually, an, an anthropologist called Sasanga Pereira at the South Asian University. So, some of the questions that we are raising there is actually in continuation what I'm doing here in the sense of, like, looking at the, you know, the life of, uh, you know, the life of decoloniality, actually, in the South Asian context now. So, of course, that's a completely different project, but I thought this Bloomsbury connection is fantastic. <laughs> No, 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 that's well. It, it's relevant in that you we organically preempted um, my my typically final question is, which is, oh, what are you working on now? What are you working on next? So it's it's great to hear that you're working on such issues. Of course, you know, scholarship's important in any niche, but certain it seems that certain strands of scholarship tie much more closely into current events, current issues, hot button issues. You know. Um, uh, if, if I'm doing a, a public talk and, you know, one may I present it as, uh, you know, this is the narrative structure of the Devi Mahatmya as related to Markandi Purana, or I'm going to say, hey, here's some ancient Indian myths on the sacred feminine. <laughs> right? So exactly the same talk. <laughs> but, but, but being able to sort of, um, being able to place it within a greater interest, I think is often quite useful. Yeah. So um, you'll have to reappear on the podcast when that that work is out. Regarding this work, is there anything else about this publication that you wanted to share or touch on? Uh, or just that I, I'm very, you know, like uh, as a, an anthropologist, I'm excited about 
what's going to be the afterlife of this book in the sense that how people have so different people have you know received it actually differently for example historians of science so i was very happy to see how historians of science have you know received it well you know so i'm not an anti-historian of science as a trained historian of science but the robert anderson has written a fantastic review of the books uh, are you know saying how important it is to look at texts like mine uh, for historians of science so i'm actually happy about the fact that uh, you know so it's it's going to be almost a year now and uh, the most important thing is indignation is out so <laughs> excellent excellent okay well thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today for those listening, we have been speaking with Rene Thomas on science and religion in India, brand new Rutledge publication as part of their uh, science and religion series. Uh, until next time, keep well, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating how this thing called science and this thing called religion relate to one another. Bye for now.